X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, June 26th. Today, back in the day, June 26, 1959, Prince Edward County closed their public schools rather than desegregate. The Virginia Board of Supervisors refused to appropriate money from the county school board of the public schools so that they did not have to comply with a federal order in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education. And from there, strengthened the school choice and anti-government movement across the United States, birthed in the South after Brown versus Board. And today, way back in the day, June 26, 1844, the provisional government in Oregon, having previously voted to bar slavery in the Oregon Territory, amended the no slavery law on June 26, 1844, to give slaveholders a time limit to remove their slaves out of the country. The effect was to legalize slavery in Oregon for three years. Today on The Local, we'll start with the Quick Six News headlines, an in-depth look at the special legislative session with Alex Zielinski from the Portland Mercury and an interview with Oregon Supreme Court Justice Adrian Nelson. First up, it is today's Quick Six. Your legislative updates on police accountability and reform. A legislative committee met late Thursday night to finish work on a stack of bills. As a result, lawmakers might close as soon as today, Friday, as soon as each chamber meets. Six bills were proposed on police reform. Chiefs of police and district attorneys praised changes to the bills that weakened the degree of reforms. Here are the updates on six bills presented. Shout out to some good reporting by Dirk Vanderhart. First of all, use of chokeholds by police. The original draft of House Bill 4203 banned the practice, but now chokeholds would be allowed under the current version of the bill if deadly use of force is justified. Big note, by the way, the use of force statute has not been changed, and advocates call it one of the worst in the country. Second, the use of tear gas, sound cannons, and long-range acoustic devices. That's House Bill 4203. That got weakened, allowing the use of tear gas in riot situations, as long as police say they're going to do it in advance and give demonstrators a chance to leave. And sound cannons or rubber bullets, they don't get any new limits. And as we reported yesterday, a bill to turn investigations of police actions involving death or serious injury over to the attorney general. That was House Bill 4201. That got scrapped. They punted that to a special legislative committee for more study. Fourth, the duty to intervene. That's requiring officers to intervene or report a fellow officer who is engaged in misconduct. That's House Bill 4208. That was amended to clarify what kinds of actions involved wrongdoing that should be reported. Number five, the statewide database. That's House Bill 4207 would require police agencies to check disciplinary records when hiring an officer who is working in a different jurisdiction. Finally, the sixth bill, we discussed this with Senator Lou Frederick. That's Senate Bill 1604. It's the only bill without any amendments. It makes it easier to uphold discipline against police. It's also the bill the police unions continue to actively oppose. The measure would put new limits on the ability of officers to get an arbitrator to overturn discipline. Arbitrators have reversed several big-profile police officer dismissals in Portland in recent decades. And again, the big note, nothing has been proposed to address qualified immunity or to reform Oregon's use-to-force statute. Senator James Manning of Eugene called the package of bills a start. Your COVID-19 rundown. Clark County is going to apply for Washington's Phase 3. County announced it would submit its application today, June 26. It's the soonest date allowed for the county to apply. 
According to public health officials, Clark County is hitting state targets for controlling COVID-19 transmission. The county has to show that it has fewer than 25 cases per 100,000 residents. Under Phase 3, libraries, museums, movie theaters, gyms, and other recreational facilities are allowed to open at 50% capacity. Restaurants can allow more people, and people can start sitting at bars. It also increases the maximum gathering to 50 people. There are 16 counties already in Phase 3. That includes Lewis, Pacific, and Skamania. And the question now is, is Clark County ready? They did have 13 new cases on Wednesday. 161 diagnosed since June 5th when the county entered the second of Washington's four phases. The county's total number of COVID-19-related deaths confirmed remains at 29. And in response to increasing case counts, Washington Governor Jay Inslee has announced a mandatory mask order. Beginning today, June 26th, all Washingtonians are required to wear face masks in public spaces. Washington Department of Health is reporting just south of 30,000 confirmed cases, just south of 1,300 known deaths, and over 4,000 people hospitalized. Oregon Health officials reported 124 new confirmed or presumptive cases on Thursday. That brings Oregon State's total to 7,500 known cases, actually 7,568. 29 new cases in Multnomah County, 24 new cases in Washington County. In terms of contact tracers, Oregon counties now have 500 people able to carry out case investigations and contact tracing functions. And Governor Brown on Thursday announced she will commute the prison sentences of 57 people deemed vulnerable to COVID-19. Governor said the individuals, and I'm quoting, do not present an unacceptable public safety risk. Nearly 200 inmates in the state's prison system have tested positive for COVID-19, including one person who has died. And the Oregon State Penitentiary has been deemed the state's largest outbreak. And here's some more legislative updates from the very special, special session. This is an unprecedented session, folks. More bills being considered in fewer days than I think any time in Oregon history, at least than I'm aware of. And here are a few big updates. The House voted to repeal the law that allows license suspension for inability to pay fines. Data demonstrates significant disparate impact related to race and ethnicity. Remember in Ferguson, Missouri... A big number of arrests there were based on the previous inability to pay fines, which compounded and compounded on each other. House Bill 4210 in Oregon does not forgive debt owed from fines. It does still allow courts to suspend the license of drivers who fail to appear in court. The state Senate has passed a cell phone tax. This cell phone tax died during the Republican walkout last year. It's on its way to the fast track during this special session. It's Senate Bill 1603 for people following OLIS at home. By the way, I give you the bill numbers because then you can Google them. You can use OLIS. That's the Oregon legislative online system. And you can track what's happening with the bills. You can even testify if you want. Senate Bill 1603 shifts the burden of financing rural telecom from the few landline subscribers to the larger pool of wireless phone customers. And it takes some new money from the tax to finance broadband projects in rural parts of the state. There are a lot of places in rural Oregon that have agonizingly slow web connections. That said, support for the bill largely comes from urban and suburban Democrats. Rural Republicans, whose constituents would benefit from faster Internet, uniformly oppose the tax hike in a committee vote on Wednesday. The bill now awaits votes by the full House and Senate. According to the Tax Foundation, Oregon has the lowest cell phone taxes in the nation. Oregon residents pay just about one-sixth of the national average. According to advocates, a new tax would increase typical cell phone bills by about four bucks a year, and that would raise about $5 million for rural broadband. And alongside would come a reduction in what subscribers pay for landline phones. The bill's supporters say this could save the typical residential landline customer 12 bucks a year. 
and the legislature is not passing blanket liability protection for businesses. Proponents wanted to encourage faster reopening of the economy. Barbara Smith Warner, the House Majority Leader, wrote in opposition to the bill, arguing it could have unintended consequences, impact the most vulnerable, while disadvantaging businesses who want to follow the law and the health guidance. Speaker Tina Kotek announced on Thursday that the liability issue would be sent to a work group, potentially for some upcoming session to take on. And here's a note. Legislative leaders do now expect Kate Brown to call a budget-focused special session this summer, possibly later in July. There is such a high expectation of the session, and maybe other ones, that the loan committee holding public hearings and working on bills this week is named the Joint Committee on the First Special Session of 2020. Notice if you already call it the first, the odds of a sequel, very, very high. By the way, shout out to reporter Dick Hughes at OregonCapitalInsider.com. I think we're going to be talking to him next week. Listen to those congressmen arguing. Is all that discussion and debate about you? Yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones. Most bills never even get this far. I hope they decide to report on me favorably. Otherwise, I may die. Die? Yeah, die in committee. The Beaverton School District has released a tentative plan for returning to the classroom this fall. On Wednesday, the school district announced that students can expect to split their time between the classroom and online learning. According to state health protocols, full classrooms won't be possible. There will be an online-only option called Flex Online. Applications will be available July 1st. You'll have until July 24th to apply. There will be three listening sessions to ask questions and give feedback, available July 13th to the 15th. And as far as Portland Public Schools, on Tuesday they presented early plans to reintroduce students into classrooms. District leaders hope to have an idea of what those plans look like by July 1st. And in work and economic news, thousands of furloughed Oregon teachers are still waiting for their WorkShare benefits. WorkShare is designed to help employers retain skilled workers through temporary downturns. So when employers cut hours, the state pays jobless benefits to compensate for the reduced wages. School districts throughout Oregon offer to furlough employees one day a week through the rest of the spring. The idea was to save money for the fall and use federal coronavirus relief payments to pay the workers. That 20% cut in worker pay was intended to be fully offset in most cases by the district's participation in Oregon WorkShare and the weekly $600 stimulus approved by Congress. However, it's been over a month now, and that money still hasn't arrived. The Oregon Employment Department, we've talked about them before, more than once, says its WorkShare program has been overwhelmed by the coronavirus recession. The program now takes eight weeks to pay claims. That means several thousand Oregon teachers still haven't received their benefits. The state says the money is coming. Employees are, well, skeptical. A half million Oregonians have filed regular unemployment claims since the middle of March. Important public schools alone has at least 4,500 teachers and staff that have been waiting since May. In other COVID-19-related employment news, the Portland Trailblazers have issued layoffs and salary reductions amid the coronavirus pandemic. And pour one out for the montage. Le Bistro Montage has closed its doors. And some good news. Have no, well, limited fear. The Pickles are here. After the West Coast League baseball season was canceled, the Portland Pickles announced the formation of the Wild Wild West League, a.k.a. the Everybody Gets Coronavirus League. It's not what it's called. On Thursday, the new league announced its schedule, along with a surprising twist. Everybody gets coronavirus. That's not true. The Pickles will temporarily move their home games to Marion County to allow a limited number of fans to attend. Remember, Marion County was one of the counties with the highest outbreak rates. That's not part of the story. The Pickles say the team will eventually move back to its usual home at Walker Stadium in southeast Portland. 
but only when Multnomah County enters Phase 2 of the reopening plan. Oregon guidelines allow for up to 250 people at outdoor events in Phase 2. The Wild Wild West League season will kick off July 11th with the Spanish flu facing off against the French cholera. That's not true. The real game is going to be between the Pickles and the Gherkins. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. The legislature is in a special session in Oregon. What bills will make it to a vote? How bold will legislators be in this historic moment? How long will it last? Here are Jefferson Smith and Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, with insights. You know someone who has been covering police accountability in our town, in the city hall, for more than the last 10 weeks is Alex Zelensky of the Portland Mercury, and she is joining us right now. Alex Zelensky, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Woo-wee. It's the only answer I got. Woo-wee. <laughs> it's lots. Sure. It's lots. So yeah, what are you tracking now? Are you tracking the, le- the special legislative session? Yeah, um, I'm uh, anticipating a 10 a.m. start to the special session today. I mean, this is the second day of it, but today uh, legislators are going to address a lot of the kind of proposed police reform uh, bills and some of the, the housing, um, housing kind of uh, security bills for renters and for folks with mortgages during COVID. And so, um, yeah, I'm really, I've, I've been interested to see kind of what um, the police side of the special session will look like, especially because Governor Kate Brown really made it clear that this, this special session is going to be, you know, both focused on COVID, but also focus on police reform and seeing what that really looks like has been interesting and, 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 curious to see what can actually be accomplished in a short amount of time um, when it comes to, you know, sweeping reforms that, that the state and, and at least a lot of its citizens are hoping for. Well, I want to, there are, yeah, I, I did my own, my own reporting. Uh, I did my own reporting last night of the bills that seem to be, uh, seem to be moving and those that seem not to be. Uh, what are you seeing as stuff that is high priority stuff that isn't that isn't likely to happen right now? Um, well, I think the one that um, that we're pretty sure might be stalled is a bill asking for um, the state uh, attorney general's office to investigate police uh, shootings or the incidents of, of police shootings that end in death um, in local jurisdictions. So, you know, for instance, if uh, a Portland police officer shot and killed someone um, and there's, um, you know, there's an ensuing investigation as to kind of what happened, why that happened, uh, it wouldn't be done by someone in the Portland Police Bureau. It would be done, that investigation could be done by someone at the Attorney General's office. Um, the idea being that it's someone who is not tied directly or not employed by the same um, same city and same jurisdiction as the the person who maybe um, you know uh, shot and killed someone, and so that that bill, while while it seems really promising for some folks, I think the attorney general's office has really raised concerns that they don't really have the bandwidth to do all those investigations, um, and that there needs to be more details kind of hashed out as to, okay, when um, in what circumstances will they be called in versus not? How do you make sure that, you know, right after the, uh, 
mean, after a crime like that is committed or, you know, the, the investigation begins right afterwards. Usually police come to the scene, investigators come to the scene, they mark everything off. How will the attorney general's office be able to be there to start the investigation immediately? Do they have the capacity to have the same kind of boots on the ground presence that traditional investigations have? And maybe if they don't, like, is that a loss? We don't know. So that's something that I think a lot of lawmakers and, and including the attorney general's office itself is, is kind of um, hesitant to fully support because they feel like there needs to be more details ironed out, which I think is going to be something raised again and again in this very brief special session saying, hey, these reforms are great, but we haven't had much time to actually um, iron out the wrinkles and really take a look. Uh, and, okay, let's maybe form some work groups and think about it, which is, you know, a classic response to any issue in <laughs> legislative sessions or legislative uh, scenarios. But um, it's still, it's it, it, it'll be interesting to see kind of today, especially um, if, where that tone is set. I saw a dynamic in the city. I think we all saw a dynamic in the city where Joanne Hardesty had been the leader of the activist band. And then all of a sudden the band moved on and was saying, well, let's do even more than this. More is possible. Are you seeing a similar uh, dynamic in the legislature with uh, Lou Frederick and Janelle Bynum, who have been placed as and have shown their own leadership to help lead this band? And now advocates are trying to push even further. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's spot on. There are. Um, a lot of folks who are in the kind of police reform advocacy um, group who believe that the state legislature isn't going far enough, that they are just trying to pass bills um, that will maybe set the groundwork for future work, which is not, um, you know, what radical kind of reform looks like to activists. Um, It's kind of your classic uh, legislative, you know, um, incremental reforms over you know what a special session kind of is hoping to be um lou frederick uh is is has proposed a bill and reintroduced the bill that he's introduced twice before um and is not really changing the phrasing or, or wording about it um that will limit or make it a little bit it, the intention is to make it easier to fire police officers who commit misconduct um who are often supported by a police union and challenged that, that firing or that, um, you know, uh, punishment is usually challenged by the police union. It goes to arbitration. A lot of times those um, arbitrators side with the police union, and so then these officers are never fired or disciplined. And uh, Lou Frederick's bill is intending to make that process a little more equitable and, and to make sure that... Um, Arbitrators are following the rules as to where conduct or what level of punishment matches the level of misconduct that the police union or the police bureau is following. Um, but a lot of people in kind of the police uh, advocate or accountability um, community are looking at this bill and saying this, you know, there are gaps in it. It's not doing entirely what it's promising to do. Um, it probably won't have a huge impact on a lot of cases, especially, you know, if we're looking ones in the past um, that we might, you know, ideally would have liked to see changed. It wouldn't have impacted a lot of those cases. And uh, Lou Frederick is really saying, hey, you know, I've tried to push this twice before. I think this is my moment. I want to get this bill passed. 
sure, it might not be perfect, but it's kind of the beginning of a conversation around police reform. Um, and yeah, a lot of people are saying that's not enough. This is this is a moment. This is a you know historic moment where we can make more change, where we can do the right thing, and we can really um, pin down something that's uh, that transformative. Um, there's and, never been, there's never been, I've talked to now multiple people who've been in the process for a long time who said there's never been a moment like this. And it's obvious to people who haven't been in the process, but it's also for people who've worked in and served as legislators, they've never seen a moment like this in history to do stuff. And that can be hard to come to grips with. Right. Yeah. And you also are still thinking about being reelected and what your legacy looks like. And, you know, that's kind of the classic political um drive and focus of course this is a moment where um you also as a politician can really like make history so it'll be interesting to see kind of if anyone steps up to that plate and that's the real that's the real issue right now but alex Zelensky, i don't know if i've ever been more grateful to be able to talk to you than this time in history thank you so much for taking the time thank you have a good one judge adrian nelson is the first african-american woman appointed to the oregon supreme court Judge Nelson and Jefferson Smith are up next with a look back at Judge Nelson's journey to Oregon and a look forward at addressing biases in the judicial system. Here comes the judge. And joining us in just a moment is someone who has lived a storied life. The first African-American appointed to the Supreme Court of Oregon in 2021. She will have the high school have a high school named after her in North Clackamas, Judge Adrian Nelson currently serving a six-year term in Oregon's highest court, and she is on the phone with us right now. Hello, Your Honor. Good morning. How you holding up? You know, I'm doing pretty well today. I got I to gotta ask about the high school, first of all. So when you get a high, okay. how does it happen to get a high school named after you? Like, because this isn't posthumous, right? This, like, you actually, they can call you. You can be in the room when they discuss it, or maybe not in the room because nobody's in the same room together all the time. But h- how do you find out about this? Well, you know, this was actually a multi-year process. Uh, there were actually two votes for the school being named after me. In 2018, um, after a number of conversations, the uh, the vote was not positive. It was voted down. They changed the process. They and so what? The voting it down meant they were going to keep the same name, or they were named after someone else. No. So there were two schools that they had to name. One was an elementary school that ended up being approved and, and is actually in existence right now for uh, the first African-American female who got a law degree here, Beatrice Morrow Kennedy, who was part of many race discussions here in the state and actually was a, uh, a, a founder of what is now the Portland Observer, one of the two black papers in this state. Sure. The other is the scanner. So, uh, and then there was a conversation about the new high school, and my name was three, no, two. It was my name in uh, uh, Oregon Supreme Court, uh, not sorry, Oregon Supreme Court, that's me, Oregon Symphony conductor James DePriest. I remember James DePriest. He was, a, he was, a, it seemed like right. he was the head of the Oregon Symphony my whole childhood. Right, you know, and so it was voted down. There was a concern about the process. And they redid the process, the school board did, and it came up through that second process that 
James the Priest and my name <laughs> were the two names submitted again. And at that meeting in May of 2019, uh, which I did not attend, um, I they named they chose to name it after me. So I wasn't in the room, but I was kind of aware of the process and. I really don't know who submitted my name because names were submitted from a variety of sources uh, in the community. And then there ended up being one which ended up being my name. As a bit of background, you went to University of Arkansas. You mm-hmm. weren't born in Oregon. You ended up here what because your mother had relocated here. I think you were born in maybe Kansas. Yep. No, Kansas City, Missouri, I think. That's right. All of that's correct. And so how did you end up here? What was the decision like? And what was the transition like to move to Portland, Oregon? So my mother and I always joke about this. I think she is totally serious about it. I'm not so sure about it. This is just a part of family history that I guess we'll never agree on, except the result. She said that I promised, because I grew up in a very close-knit family. I lived next door to her parents and my maternal grandparents. And across the street from my maternal grandparents was my grandfather's great mother. So I had my great grandmother, my grandparents in our home. And she said that I said as a teenager that I would live near her whenever I had children. And so when I had my daughter, my mother said, okay, when you coming to Oregon? (laughs) (laughs) It's supposed to happen. And we made an agreement that it was not something I wouldn't consider, but that I would come to Oregon for two years, and then I would have fulfilled this obligation I had to her, and I could be free to move and live anywhere I wanted. But during the two years that I was here, um, I, I did notice that there seemed to be all kinds of divides, but I did notice the racial divide. And I asked people what was going on. How'd you notice and it? And why? How, how, I'm sorry? How did you notice it? How was it manifesting itself? Well, it was clear to me that certain people lived certain places. Yeah. So the redlining, um, that there was a difference in uh, people's earning capacity. Uh, and it just seemed like there was, for me, a certain, uh, as I moved around, because I would get, Um, a paper and see what different activities were happening that weekend and if something was interesting to me I went and I noticed that there was not always a mixed cloud and it made me curious so what'd you do you find this curiosity you realize you you look around you say hey what's going on here what do you do so I started asking people who I had developed begun to develop friendships with and some have continued and deepened and they were honest And out of that, because I'm legally trained and also I'm a literature major uh, uh, from from my undergraduate degree, um, I went to the Oregon Historical Society to get some information, and I picked up the book Peculiar Paradise that may be out of print now that talked about the history of blacks. And it helped me understand where I was now. It didn't make me feel like I got to hurry up and get out of here because I do know the story of migration. And now more, more people know the story of migration, particularly from Isabel Wilkinson's The Warmth of Other Sons. But I realized, okay, I've gotten confirmation. What I'm sensing, what I saw is real. What am I going to do if I'm going to raise my daughter here? And how am I going to navigate all of this? So that's what made me 
notice, I decided to stay because I met wonderful people from all walks of life that would be honest with me and say, yes, this is what's happening. We're wanting to make it more inclusive and better, and we're hoping that we could have you and others come and help us. It was a long time before this state had our first black justice. It is not that yes. long since you've been, I mean, it's not, it hasn't been that long since you've been appointed and then elected. What are you seeing right now in the culture of the legal profession in Oregon? What are you seeing now in the culture of the judicial uh, branch in Oregon? Any changes you're seeing over the last 10 years or heck, 10 weeks? Well, I think that um, the governor's appointments, so I was first appointed in 2006 by uh, former governor uh, Ted Kunigowski. And he, during his term, two terms, appointed a large number of diverse attorneys to the bench. And so that the bench is more reflective of the communities we serve. And uh, uh, Governor Brown has taken up that mantle and has appointed a large variety of people. And as a matter of fact, there was an Oregonian article, I want to say, in 2017 about uh, all of the various uh, people she had appointed that not only were racially and ethnically uh, diverse, not only based on gender uh, diversity, but also based on sexual orientation and quite frankly, economic backgrounds, people who had parents who had had challenges from, you know, uh, uh, drug addiction, and, uh, and other issues, as well as people who had come through the foster care system and become judges. So I think that there is a recognition more so than when I first came in that our communities need to be reflective of our, uh, in our judiciary because that instills public trust and confidence. When I did the listening sessions in 20. 16, as a result of unrest in this country at the time, um, we heard loud and clear that people were not really willing to embrace us as they were. We heard loud and clear, gosh, this you all don't really look like everybody else. You don't ignore that. You say, yes, and hmm. what do you do? You know, and so I think that my colleagues are very much open to the idea. Yesterday, this is late breaking news, for years I have many projects that I do because <laughs> I really do feel like I'm supposed to make this world better than I was born when I was first born. And Lisa Hay, the current federal public defender, and I collected a group of people uh, to talk about what we could do to educate potential jurors about unconscious bias. And as a result of our efforts in late 2016 when we first were contemplating on up until 2016 when we formed the committee, we have an unconscious bias video for jurors that we're hoping will be played both in state and federal courts along with your juror orientation video. So that people, if they're unaware of what unconscious bias is, they can understand the concept 
and how it should not play a part in their serving on a jury if chosen and that it helps them understand what their role is as a juror. So, you know, I could give you others, but I think that's enough for right now. I've got to at least say something about the unconscious bias because you, and you said two things, and I think in those two things you said a mouthful. The representation of the judiciary means at least two things. One, it means that any young person, heck, any older person who is looking at how justice is going to be applied can have a little more faith that justice is going to be applied fairly in their circumstance if they see roughly accurate representation in the judiciary. The second thing I heard you say is that also we have to be really conscious as we apply power, as the state applies power, that it is applying it fairly and being aware of lived experience, being aware of unconscious bias. I caught that right. Any last word on that? That's great. But that's one of the things I want to follow up on in part two. No, I I, I think you got it right. And I I recognize that it's a challenge, you know, and I have uh, spent a lot of time. I do training on it. I've trained our judges. I've done presentations on it, uh, uh, both for lawyers and firms and, and, like I said, within our judicial branch. But, yes, I'd love to talk more about it, as well as, you know, others who are doing the work and, 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 and update you on what we're trying to do within our branch. Uh, to, to, to address it. Judge Nelson, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks to Alex and thanks to Judge Nelson for joining the local and big thanks to our production team. Editor extraordinariness, Will Romy, writers DJ Ambush, Casey, Kate K, Julia Oppenheimer, Joey Palchik, Miranda Selinger, writer Sherwood, Jamie Zangwill, and co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. I'm Jefferson Smith. And thanks for the original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, OPB, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, Lamont Week, Pamplin Media, the Oregonian, the Statesman Journal, Bike Portland, Eater, Oregon Capital Insider, KTVZ, Street Roots, Coin, and News Partners, Bridgeliner, and the Portland Mercury. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. And today is the very last day for Best of Portland Voting. You can go ahead to xray.fm and see the vote button. It's pretty easy. To be clear, we know this is not the most important thing right now, but we want to make sure we at least maybe get a few votes. Again, the link is bit.ly slash xrayfm2020, or you can just go to xray.fm and click the vote button. Thanks, everybody, for sticking together while we're apart. And thank you, democracy. X-ray. But today I am still just a bill. He signed your bill, now you're a law. Oh, yeah!